Hello and welcome to this edition of the Ian Abernethy podcast. You can watch videos and listen to other podcast episodes by visiting www.ianabernethy.com. So, without further ado, here's Ian Abernethy. Hello everyone, I'm Ian Abernethy and I'm back, I'm back. <laughs> uh, it's been a while since the last podcast, just been very busy on all fronts, uh, a lot going on in uh, personal life at the moment as well as uh, the travelling for the seminars and things so uh, I'm sorry I haven't been able to get a podcast here from a few months. Uh, October would have been our fifth year of podcasting as well and I had hoped to have something special for that one but we uh, we missed it so I'll make that up to you at some point so um, yeah so hopefully we're back to kind of routine broadcasting now which should be good news. Um, got a kind of double podcast for you as well since as you've been so patient and you've, you've waited so long um, but just before we get into that a uh, couple of really quick bits of news really but uh, those who've been long time listeners will remember the satma idea i had the society of applied traditional martial arts uh, which used to be a group that would help get you know grading recognition and support for people who wanted to approach the traditional martial arts in a more practical way now for one thing or another that never really kind of uh, came off um Predominantly due to uh, admin difficulties, if we're honest, just finding time for me to do it. So what I've done is I've had a little chat with the uh, the people at the British Combat Association. Actually, obviously, you'll know those very well. A lot of you uh, in the UK will be involved with those. And uh, obviously, you'll know how world-class their admin is. You know, it's 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 phenomenal. So uh, I was chatting with Peter Constantine, who's obviously the chief instructor of the, uh, the joint chief instructor, along with Jeff Thompson, of the British Combat Association with a view to setting something up um, with uh, obviously the admin support and the technical support of the BCA uh, with myself kind of uh, taking the, the lead with the kind of traditional side of things for this new organisation and we, we've already started work on it so we, we've already started designing licence books and grading certificates and looking at websites so hopefully uh, that should be up and running in the not too distant future and that'll be a worldwide body as well unlike the British Combat Association which is obviously uh, only up to people who uh, reside in uh, in the UK uh, this will be an international uh, one looking at you know again people like us you know to approach the traditional martial arts from a practical uh, standpoint so now i'm sure you've got lots of questions on that but if you can just kind of all uh, hang fire that would be great and i'll get that information out to you as as soon as we're ready to go but if you keep an eye on the website the facebook page the twitter feed and obviously the podcasts newsletters all the usual places uh, as soon as there's uh, there's news on that we'll get that up and running so um yeah so that, that'll be a great thing i think we've got all the original kind of ideas in place we're going to do it under a different name the satma name's gone uh, but it'll the same kind of services uh, applied but uh, just by joining up with the, the people at the bca it'll be a really uh, effective thing I, i'm looking forward to that i'm very excited about it um okay so uh, this month's podcast i've got two uh, two pieces for you uh, again, that's just because you've been so good and waited for so long <laughs> since the last one. So the first one we've got is on uh, discipline and defiance. So we're talking about the, the attribute of discipline, which is often obviously regarded as a, a positive thing in the martial arts. But, you know, I make the case that there are some negatives to it as well. And then the notion of defiance and why I feel that defiance is important and we need to develop that in training too. And in the second part uh, of the podcast, we've got a piece called Practical Karate. Uh, I guess it could apply to practical anything really but I've, I've gone with karate and it's looking at what practical is what does the word actually mean and therefore uh, for anything to claim the label of practical what would it need to be 
doing for that definition to be uh, to be valid. So I hope uh, this has been uh, worth the wait. And again, I do apologise. You know, I like to get at least one podcast out a month, but but there are some things in life that are even more important than podcasts. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, back on track with them now. So I, again, I hope, as I say, this has been worth the wait. And I thought it'd be a good time to try and get out this time of year as well, just between uh, Christmas and New Year and. Uh, um, hope it gives you something to uh, to enjoy listening to. So, yeah, thanks once again. You know, appreciate the support of the podcast. It's been great that uh, everybody's been asking where it is. And uh, as I say, I hope it's been worth the wait. And thanks once again to everyone who supports the website, uh, buys the books and DVDs, you know, because obviously you finance the whole thing and uh, enable us to provide all this free stuff too. So, uh, okay, I think that's enough for this introduction. We'll now go into the first part, which is on uh, discipline and defiance. In this podcast, I'd like to discuss the subjects of defiance and discipline. Discipline is something readily claimed as one of the positives of martial arts training. However, it's not all positive, and in this podcast, I'd like to share my thinking on how discipline can be problematic when it comes to both character development and the practical application of the martial arts. The other related subject we'll be exploring is that of defiance. It is my view that martial training needs to develop a sense of defiance in order to optimise self-defence skills and develop character. Defiance is, of course, not something welcomed in most dojos. However, I believe defiance is something that needs to be encouraged and developed, as it too is a vital component of both the do and jitsu sides of training. So let's begin by breaking down the positives and negatives of both discipline and defiance, uh, firstly from a purely functional sense, and later on we'll look at how the combative lessons from within the dojo can apply to life outside it. When looking at discipline, I would say there are two essential types of discipline. There is the discipline that comes from within, which we'll call internal discipline, and the discipline that comes from the outside, provided by others, which we'll call external discipline. They are related, but they need to be understood separately if we're to get the most from training and avoid problems. One of the most frequent claims made about the martial arts is that they teach discipline. The way I see this is that the rigid structure and demanding nature of the dojo demands discipline from the students. The students are made to face difficult and demanding tasks. If they wish to remain a member of the dojo, they have to face up to those tasks as choosing not to do them, or choosing to do them half-heartedly, is simply not permitted. By being made to face these difficult tasks, the students will become both physically and mentally stronger. Eventually, they will be willing to face hardship because they know that it leads to growth. The external uh, motivation, if you like, provided by the sensei becomes the internal discipline that the student uses to drive themselves. The external discipline, once imposed by the sensei, leads to the student developing internal discipline. External discipline is imposed so that internal discipline can be developed. When that internal discipline is developed, the external discipline is no longer needed. The students will drive and push themselves. Of course, we know we've all got our limits, and there are times when we'll want to seek the easy path. And in those instances, the sensei or coach, or whatever you want to call them, should be there to help push us when we fail to push ourselves to a sufficient degree. However, in the right dojo environment, internal discipline will be so high that the need for uh, external discipline is reduced. This reduction in external discipline doesn't lead to a lack of discipline in the dojo environment overall because it's replaced by the far more important and far more valuable internal discipline of the students. It doesn't need the sense of yielding a big stick because everybody does what they know they need to do. 
The big problem with external discipline, the discipline that comes from the sensei or the instructor, that arises, the big problem of that arises when it's forgotten that it's a means to an end. If external discipline remains the dominant form of discipline and we lose sight of the fact that the purpose of external discipline is to develop internal discipline so that the external form can be replaced, then we're going to have big problems. If external discipline is never reduced in favour of internal discipline, we have a situation where the sensei will always reign supreme and will always be responsible for getting the students to do what is required. There are many problems with this all too common situation. Firstly, if the student does not have internal discipline, their development will be eternally stunted. Secondly, and this is frequently overlooked, conditioning the student to always unquestioningly obey the ever-present discipline provided by the sensei is not at all what we want for self-protection. It is not at all good to present always bowing down, figuratively and literally, to the authority figure and the toughest guy in the room as being a good thing under the guise of discipline. Self-protection is all about keeping ourselves safe from the will of those who would seek to harm us and those we love. We have to be able to forcefully and resolutely say no to those who would seek to harm us. We need to learn to defy those who mean us harm, regardless of what authority they hold over us and whatever physical prowess they may possess. It is for this reason that always saying yes to physically able authority figures can be very problematic. Of course, in the vast majority of dojo, the sensei means well and is not seeking to harm their students, you know, quite the contrary. However, if external discipline is not used in the, as an ever-reducing means to develop internal discipline and becomes ever-present and therefore makes the sensei into an authority figure who controls all and who is never questioned, we are effectively conditioning the student to be subservient. And this trait is something that can be exploited by those who do mean to do the students harm. It's for this reason that we must also seek to develop a strong sense of defiance in our students. Now, just as we have two kinds of discipline, I would suggest that there are, broadly speaking, two forms of defiance. There's a defiance that comes from weakness, and there's a defiance that comes from strength. In the early stage of training, the student will need the sensei to push them outside their comfort zone in order to develop strength, skill, and, as we've discussed, internal discipline. Now, if the student is so scared of being pushed outside their comfort zone that they rebel out of fear, then there's obviously going to be no growth. Uh, this form of defiance is self-defeating and arises from and promotes weakness. If the student is uh, not prepared to push themselves and is not prepared to be pushed, then the dojo is obviously not a place for them. However, there is a defiance that comes from strength, and that's the defiance of weakness and the defiance of circumstance. When we find ourselves outside our comfort zone, there's an entirely understandable urge to return to where we feel safe, able and comfortable. Now we need to defy that urge if we are to remain outside the comfort zone and hence grow in skill and strength. We need to defy our own weakness and defy our desire for comfort. In cartoons like you know, Tom and Jerry and Flintstones and things like that, it's not uncommon to portray a moral dilemma by having an angel appear on one shoulder and a devil appear on the other, with each character giving you know, contradictory advice. Now when I'm outside my comfort zone, I experience something similar where my weakness seeks to have me ease off and return to comfort and my strength seeks to push me forwards. If I'm to advance, then I need to defy my weakness and side with my strength. I need to say a forceful no to that which would limit me, defiantly raise my middle finger to it and carry on regardless. 
A strong sense of internal defiance is needed if we are to overcome our weakness and advance ourselves. Uh, this defiance also allows us to defy external circumstances. When the training in the dojo is physically and mentally demanding, we may seek to quit and return to comfort. When we do, that is when our weaker side has been able to overwhelm our stronger side. Internally, we lost that strong sense of defiance and hence we were externally unable to defy the circumstances. To defy the circumstances and hence to thrive and succeed in those challenging circumstances, we need to keep a strong sense of defiance. When we feel that desire to ease off or quit, then we need to stand firm in defiance of that feeling. Self-defense wise, a defiance of the will of others is obviously vital. Now, I can't recall who originally said it to me, but I was once told that karate is your ability to say no. So the bad guy, you know, I'm going to hurt you. No, you're not. I'm going to harm you and your loved ones. No, you're not. You know, and so on. Realistic self-protection training gives you the ability to forcefully say no and defy the will of others. Self-protection training therefore needs to be uh, sure to develop this sense of defiance. It is when we combine that internal uh, discipline with a defiance of weakness and defiance of circumstance that we become able to address the harsh environment that is the dojo. Indeed, it is the demands of the dojo that are the keys to developing that discipline and defiance. Now, I like this phrase, you know, it has been said that the way of the warrior does not allow you to accept an inferior position to anything. No, the way of the warrior does not allow you to accept an, an inferior position to anything. And I think that's really true. No matter how big the challenge, whether the challenge is internal or external, or whether the challenge is one that exists inside and outside of the dojo, if we are to be warriors, then we can never bow down before it. We, as warriors, must stand in defiance of it. As important as discipline and defiance are to our advancement in the dojo and in developing the abilities and attributes to keep us safe from the will of those who would do us harm, discipline and defiance are also vital for the door sides of the arts and our everyday lives. Gichin Funakoshi once wrote, One whose spirit and mental strength have been strengthened by sparring with a never-say-die attitude should find no challenge too great to handle. One who has undergone long years of physical pain and mental agony to learn one punch, one kick, should be able to face any task, no matter how difficult, and carry it through to the end. A person like this can be said to have truly learnt karate. Now in this paragraph, Funakoshi makes it clear that it's through the physical pain and mental agony of training that we develop the ability to see through difficult tasks outside the dojo as well as within it. Uh, the tenth of Funakoshi's 20 precepts also states, When you learn how karate is related to everything, you will have discovered its essence. Now what Funakoshi is referring to here is how karate is related to everyday life. This is made really clear in Genwa Nakasone's clarification of that precept, which uh, Funakoshi endorsed, in the book Karate Do Tai Kan. So Nakasone wrote this, he said, when you understand that one strike of the hand or foot determines life or death, then you will be able to overcome any obstacle you face. You may feel that you do not know how to face such obstacles, but it's precisely at this moment that your mental and physical training in karate will reveal themselves. It is then that you will see the indescribable beauty of karate. Again, we see the idea that the arduous nature of training gives us the ability to face the obstacles we face outside the dojo too. Now, of course, all of this is based on the premise that training in the dojo is arduous, you know. 
Um, if that's not the case, then there's no need for any form of internal discipline or any defiance of weakness and circumstance. You know, you can even argue that such a place isn't a dojo. Because um, as the old saying goes, there can be no gain unless there's pain. Through our arduous dojo training, we develop a whole host of attributes that we can uh, use to help us face arduous situations outside the dojo. Internal discipline can ensure we keep going when others would quit. That we do what needs to be done when others do what is easy. That we stay resolute when others succumb to self-pity and so on. Our sense of defiance means that we will never yield to circumstances and will always face up to whatever life may throw at us or whatever the pursuit, the goals that we have set for ourselves demand. To achieve great things and to endure great hardship, our discipline must remain resolute and our defiance must be unyielding, even if all hope seems lost. Now, most listening to this will no doubt be aware of the myth of Pandora's box. You know, it's a myth from the Greek myth. Now, as regards, you know, a box, I've heard that a jar would be a better translation than a box. But whatever the container was, the idea is that when it was opened, all the evils of the world were released and all that remained was hope. Now, I've always thought that if you were to remove hope, you'd find defiance lying underneath it. Continuing with mythology, there's the Celtic tale of Cuculum. Now, this wounded hero and son of a god realises that he's going to die. Now, before his enemies can reach him, he has time to strap himself upright so that he can face death on his feet. Cuculan's enemies keep their distance, fearing that this dying warrior is, is not yet dead. You know, he's still a threat. And they stay away from him until they see a bird land on his now-dead body, and it's only then that they've got the courage to move forward. Now, what I love about this tale is that it's a hero's death that Cuculan has. He remained defiant of circumstances, even when all hope was gone. And there's something inspiring and deeply moving about the, you know, the tale of his death. There's also, you know, there's a line in the samurai treatise, the Hagakura, uh, which states, it says, If you must fail, then fail magnificently. Now, I absolutely love that. If circumstances are such that there's no way that you can succeed, then we should defy those circumstances and make our failure glorious and magnificent. That way our failure is only external, because internally we never accepted the defeat, and hence we remained you know, defiant and resolute. External circumstances are often beyond our control, you know? so, but our internal attitude to those circumstances is entirely within our control. We can't control what happens in every single part of our lives, but we can certainly control how we react to it. So we can choose to remain internally undefeated through a strong sense of defiance of circumstances. Uh, even if external defeat is impossible to avoid. You know, that's a hero's defeat, a magnificent defeat, and a warrior's defeat because an inferior position was never taken, it was never accepted. Now, there may be some listening who feel that failure is failure and defeat is defeat, no matter what its nature, but I disagree. There is definitely such a thing as a heroic defeat. To return to mythology, there's a wonderful line in Beowulf, which is also repeated in the film uh, The 13th Warrior, and it's this, it says, fate will often save a man if his courage holds. No, fate will often save a man if his courage holds. Now, I think there's much truth in that. Even if things seem entirely hopeless uh, and beyond our control, and it's completely in the hands of fate, bold and defiant action can change what seems like an inescapable fate. There is much power in remaining def defiant and re resolving to remain resolute to the very end no matter what that end may be or seems to be. Now, as we discussed earlier, discipline is something that is strongly linked to the martial arts. 
The key, as I see it, is that the discipline of the dojo should seek to develop internal discipline in the student. The student must also develop a defiance of circumstance and a defiance of their weakness and limitations. If the discipline of the dojo remains external in nature and all-consuming, it can condition the students to always comply with those more forceful and more physically able than they. And that's the exact opposite of what we want for self-protection. This all-consuming external discipline will also change the student from a, a doe or character development perspective as well, as the development of internal discipline and positive defiance will remain forever stunted. External discipline should be a temporary support that needs to be phased out in favour of the discipline that comes from within. Discipline uh, should not be used as something to stifle defiance, as it's something to focus and encourage the right kind of defiance. When this happens and training develops internal discipline and defiance of circumstance and defiance of weakness, then we will be developing extremely important attributes for both the jitsu and the door sides of the systems that we practice. Okay, that's the uh, end of the first part of this uh, uh, New Year doubleheader podcast. So, can have a break now if you like. <laughs> go, go and put the kettle on. You can have a cup of tea. You know, press pause. I'll wait for you. You're back. Great. Excellent. Okay, we'll now go on to the second part of the uh, the podcast, which is on uh, what practical karate is uh, by defining the term practical. And then by definition, you know, what does practical karate entail and what does karate need to be doing to earn the title of uh, uh, practical? I've been thinking about the term practical and its relationship to the martial arts. I mean, what is practical karate and how is that different from standard karate? I mean, shouldn't all takes on karate be practical? I mean, what would be the point of impractical karate? So the Google Online Dictionary has practical, uh, the word practical, defined as 1. Suitable for a particular purpose 2. Likely to succeed or be effective in real circumstances 3. Concerned with the actual doing or use of something rather than with theory and ideas So I thought it would be useful to break those def uh, definitions down a little in order to get the heart of what practical karate actually is. Okay, so number one, suitable for a particular purpose. From this first definition, we can see that unless we define that particular purpose, we can't say whether something is suitable, and hence whether it is practical or not. Now, we talk about this a lot on the forum and in these podcasts, but you know, a method can never be divorced from the environment or context in which it is designed to operate. We need to be aware that a given methodology cannot be moved in a cut-and-paste manner from one context to another and be expected to function. Uh, the common example is when people state that the methods of karate competitions are not practical. However, the methods of karate competition are, by this definition, extremely practical when employed for the particular purpose of winning karate tournaments. And quite rightly too, you know, practicality and purpose are always linked. The methods of karate competition are practical for competition. The methods used for self-protection are not practical for competition. 
If we don't define the purpose, uh, we can't say what is practical and what is not. It would be fair to say that most people use the word practical in relationship to self-protection or self-defense, so that's what I'll go with in this uh, section of the podcast. We should, however, note that it is not automatically a given and that all things can be practical depending upon the purpose assigned to them. It's also you know, not enough to state that the purpose is self-protection, and we'll just leave it at that. We need to define uh, actually what that means. And hence from there, say whether the methods we are looking at are suitable and hence practical. And that obviously leads us to the next definition, you know, which definition number two was likely to succeed or be effective in real circumstances. Now, because the purpose of training is awfully, uh, often poorly defined, people think of self-protection being the same as a no-rules street fight. Now, I see this as one of the most frequent errors when approaching self-protection. You know, in that it's viewed as being one and the same as fighting, and that's a big mistake. Even when we put aside all the vitally important non-physical aspects of self-protection, such as threat awareness, personal security issues, knowledge of the law, and so on, it should be noted that the physical side of self-protection is not the same as fighting. Unless we are clear about what is required, we can't know if a given method is likely to succeed or not. Now, while there's some crossover, obviously, you know, you know, but a good punch is a good punch but effective self-protection is not the same as fighting the methods one would use to fight to the finish cannot be cut and pasted to self-protection fighting to the end is often not effective uh, and can unnecessarily put you in vulnerable positions and can leave you on the wrong side of the law when it comes to self uh, self-protection in self-protection the aim should always be to escape as soon as we can to try to outfight multiple enemies is nowhere near as effective as escaping from those enemies. To continue to inflict damage when you could have fled can leave you open to attack from others and mainly leave you on the wrong side of the law. You know, for example, you'll have to justify why you chose to remain on the scene and inflict further damage when you could have escaped. You know, and that could be construed or twisted to say you know you were taking revenge, which is obviously not legal. Um, essentially, for self-protection, we need to be fighting to flee as opposed to fighting to win. It's about not losing uh, by escaping as opposed to trying to win a fight. Remember uh, this when we look at the quotes from the past masters later on. We need to carefully examine what self-protection situations, commonly referred to as real situations, uh, what those situations require and we need to train accordingly. If we're talking about civilian self-protection, then to be practical, we need to avoid confusing fighting and self-protection and a train accordingly. You know, for both aspects, if you wish, you know, I do, you know, I, um, in my dojo, we train for the fighting side of things, you know, on the self-protection side of things, but we're aware that they're different, you know, um, and you know, we've discussed that at length in the Marshall Map podcast before, of course, which we did uh, this time last year and still available if you haven't listened to that one. Anyway, so back to this podcast, the third definition. Uh, concerned with the actual doing of something rather than with theory and ideas. So having clearly defined the purpose of training and what is needed to succeed in those circumstances, the, we then need to do it. Live practice is a must if we avoid being stuck in the world of untested theory. Sound theory is important, of course. You know, In the, in the scientific world, a, a valid theory is something which has overwhelming evidence to support it. The theory of gravity can be said to be just a theory, but that won't stop you plummeting to the ground if you step off a rooftop. Now, what we should avoid are baseless theories, and we see lots of those in the martial arts, and the best way to do that is to do as the scientists do and put all theories to the test. 
Practical karate should have lots of live training that is as close to reality as safety and practicality will allow. One of the great things about live training is that it heightens what I like to call your BS filters. So when people make outlandish claims about the effectiveness of given methods, uh, remember the untested theories we discussed a moment ago, you know they won't work because you have a simulated experience of that environment. You'll know that precise striking, complex locks, pseudo-mystical methods, uh, block and counter and so on, that just won't survive the testing process. The pointless fat uh, that some takes on the traditional arts have acquired is burnt away in an instant through such training. Live and realistic training also brings home the importance of context. If you try using one-on-one -on -one methods in a group situation, you won't last for very long. You quickly learn how the methods used need to fit the context of the situation faced, and you get good at instantaneously matching methods to context in the way that mono-context fight training simply doesn't develop. Live training is also the only way to effectively deal with the dynamic nature of the self-protection environment. While they're a useful part of the process, you can't learn what is needed through set drills alone. So my proposal is therefore that practical karate needs the following to earn the title of practical. Okay, A, the purpose of training needs to be clearly identified. Identify the goal, define the problem. B, the methods that are most effectively address that purpose can then also be identified. So we identify what will lead to the goal and will solve the problem. C, having identified those methods, they need to be drilled in a live manner in a way that will as closely reflect reality as safety allows. So we enact the solution and the methods for reaching the goal. Now, the past masters, uh, they were very good at identifying the purpose of training. You know, and here are a couple of examples, right? So this is from uh, uh, my translation of, uh, of the translation I c commissioned of Anko Itosu's 10 precepts. He said, karate is not intended to be used against a single assailant, but it is instead a way of avoiding injury by using the hands and feet should one by any chance be confronted by a villain or ruffian. Like, and here's another one. Uh, from uh, Gotobu, which this one's from uh, Tales of Okinawa's Great Masters by uh, Nagamini, and that was translated by Patrick McCarthy. But, uh, so in that book, Motobu says, um, the techniques of the kata were never developed to be used against a professional fighter in an arena or on a battlefield. They are, however, most effective against someone who has no idea of the strategy being used to counter their aggressive behaviour. So from what we've just discussed, we can see that the karate of the past, you know, karate of the kata was not for dealing with uh, dealing with single assailants professional fighters or trained warriors on a battlefield but for avoiding injury when faced by villains and ruffians who are not familiar with karate you know so i.e what it's saying is the karate of the past was civilian self-protection that's what it was for it was for civilian self-protection it's also important to note here how itosu uses the term avoiding injury as opposed to something else like winning the fight uh, what is needed to succeed in self-protection uh, situation, it's again, it's emphasised. You know, it's what we need for self-protection, not what we need for fighting. The problem is therefore clearly identified, you know, self-protection in a civilian context. The methods for dealing with that problem are also identified, the methods of the kata. If we therefore drill uh, those methods live, in what I call kata-based sparring, then we uh, assert to fulfil everything needed to be practical by the definitions we've looked at. You know, we can also claim to be traditional too, but maybe that's a story for another day. So, impractical karate would therefore be karate that has failed to clearly identify the purpose of training. 
that has therefore also failed to identify the most effective methods for any given purpose, i.e., you know, the dodgy one-step sparring methods, karate versus karate, bunkai, and all that kind of stuff being deemed relevant to self uh, self-protection, which, which it isn't. And, and also, if, you know, if they don't drill live in a realistic way, you know, so that would be impractical karate. It's it hasn't identified the problem. It hasn't identified the most effective methods to address that problem, and it's not drilling live, you know. Now, of course, no one uses the term impractical karate. No one claims that they practice impractical karate. But I think many of those listening to this would recognise the karate I've just described. It's pretty common. Uh, being practical is therefore very straightforward, it was seen. The key is simply to be goal-focused and to make effective use of what has been given to us by the past masters. Now, this raises the question of why anyone would not be goal-focused and why not all karate is practical, and I'll, I'll leave that for another day. For now, I hope the podcast, or this section of the podcast, has got you thinking about some of the issues surrounding practical karate and what is needed to be truly practical. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Thanks uh, for uh, for listening in, and hopefully you won't have as long to wait <laughs> uh, until the next podcast. Should have that with you uh, relatively soon. Uh, in the meantime, for all of like the news and just generally to keep in touch, uh, follow me on Twitter um, at Ian Abernethy, spelled I A I N A B E R N E T H Y, or twitter.com forward slash Ian Abernethy. Uh, all the tweets you send me come straight to the mobile phone so wherever I am in the world I'll normally get back to you as quickly as I can and of course we've got facebook.com forward slash Ian Abernethy as well and you can like the Facebook page and get all the updates on there as well so if you keep in touch via uh, Facebook and Twitter uh, and I'll be back with the new podcast uh, very soon okay um, so obviously on the website as well of course shouldn't forget that should I that's uh, ianabernethy.com okay so thanks for your support and uh, I'll be back uh, to speak to you again soon so hope your 2012 gets off to a cracking start and I'll see you in a few weeks. Okay, take care. Bye now.